right, everybody. Deep breath, deep cleansing breath in through the, the nose, out through your toes. And you're in time for another episode of Their Autobiola! You're listening to Their Autobia Law, the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by me, Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has worked to make cars safer. Hello, world. <laughs> Hi, everybody. You can excuse uh, Anthony's ecstatic behavior. He's just excited know, to be out of prison. I Wait, hey, why? Hey, why? Because my first and last name ended in a vowel? Come on. Hey, listen now. Uh, this week, speaking of criminality let's get into labor labor issues uh specifically around how parts of your car and well really everything you buy is using a lot of uh we'll say uh um uh <laughs> coerced labor is coerced labor is that is that a, a nicer way to stay instead of saying slavery slavery too strong mm. I, no I one's responding think, you know i don't I don't know. Put yourself in the situation of one of the folks in the Xinjiang province who's part of an ethnic minority where you're being monitored by um, Chinese authorities via camera, by your bank accounts, by basically every part of your life. And also, you know, being told where you're going to work and what you're going to be making and going to re-education for your beliefs so they can turn you into a secular citizen and all sorts of horrible things happening. You know, I, if it's not slavery, it sounds just as bad. Well, I mean, it reminds me of this one time I worked for a startup that was purchased by Walmart and it kind of sounds like that. They had re-education in there. It was, it was very strange. Maybe well, this is more, like a, more like a high tech chain gang or instead of a, you know, instead of a hammer breaking rocks, they've got hammers breaking silicon. There you go. Uh, so basically what we're going to talk about a little bit is the, and I apologize for my pronunciation issues here, the Uyghurs, they're an ethnic minority in China, uh, specifically in the Xinjiang province. And this is, they're being, uh, you know, forced to do things like help make batteries for your EVs or even for your hybrids or for your plug-in hybrids. Uh, and there's some great articles we're going to link to. There's an amazing graph from uh, a organization in the UK that maps out where every auto manufacturer and supplier uh, through a bunch of parent, through a bunch of subsidiaries to subsidiaries to subsidiaries, get their basic uh, minerals from copper uh, through uh, everything else through back through forced labor, unfortunately. Uh, and at best, we can see that some people have acknowledged this uh, and worst. Other people are just like, let's throw another company in the way and make it harder for people to find out the truth. Uh so I, I think this is uh, not the greatest thing. But specifically around this, what does this have to do with autos and auto safety? There was a great paper. I don't know, great. I mean, it's you know, it's kind of nerdy, let's be honest here. These two probably love it. Uh, it's talking about the labor strife at the Decatur Firestone plant, Bridgestone Firestone tires, back in the 90s where, hey, the workers weren't very happy. They weren't paid very well. Uh, and then it turns out that... Uh, you know what happened? The tires that <clears throat> Bridgestone Firestone produced turned out to be gar garbage and dangerous. Short story, yeah. uh, be nice to your workers. Well, that one's pertinent to the current situation in America where we're seeing the UAW um, go on partial strike right now. I think they're they're contemplating or thinking about entering a full strike in some of the product quality issues that impacted the safety of firestone tires in um, the late 90s and that that situation was if you look at the the paper we'll post it by alan kruger the late great alan kruger um who looked at the firestone problem from the perspective of where did we see the most effective uh tires coming from well they were coming from this decatur plant and they were coming from that plant during the time at which the um 
there were, you know, wage concessions and all these other demands being made. And what happened was a number of replacement workers came in and were working side by side with some of the permanent workers. You know, making tires isn't something you pick up in a day. You have to, you know, there, there's definitely a difference. And the the paper goes into this difference between, you know, skilled hands putting rubber or molding rubber and putting it onto a wheel or and all the things it takes to build a tire, all the layers and layers. And the, it's not an easy job by any means. It, it takes uh, some pretty well-developed skills that are developed over years um and what was coming out of the decatur plant uh the the tires that were coming out of there were about 15 times more likely to have resulted in a claim a legal claim than the tires manufactured in other firestone plants so there's a significant relationship between you know labor strife labor shortages you know and the product that comes out of the end of the line and reaches the consumer which is really why this is a big concern for safety in the case of china and the uyghurs maybe there's a slightly less of a concern here i may i may defer to fred on that but since these they're generally producing mining products and some 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 of the base materials that are used in ultimately manufacturing some of the some of the products that go into your vehicles. Well, I'm certainly no expert on, on how the forced labor in China is being deployed. Um, but it is true that in that section of the country, a lot of the basic materials and uh, resources that are used in fabrication of high-tech products are produced. Things like lithium carbonate, which goes into the batteries, uh, steel, stainless steel, aluminum, ba basic materials. And those basic materials can be checked for quality before they go into products downstream and hopefully always are. So there may be insulation between the Chinese chain gangs and the actual quality of the products that are being produced as a result of their forced labor. But that doesn't uh, in any way minimize the fact that there is, by widespread reports, a lot of forced labor that's occurring, usually from unwilling people who are being taken from their families and forced to move somewhere else. It, it really is very much like a chain game. Yeah, unfortunately, this is one of these, this is a problem that's pervasive to essentially everything in the world. Um, and it's an overwhelming issue because, you know, consumers, we don't want to support slavery i mean especially us americans think hey we ended slavery we don't realize we just exported it um but as a consumer there's not a lot that can be done because if every manufacturer if everyone is saying hey let's just you know turn a blind eye to this we're just going to keep doing this and i'm not going to say like every mining companies involved in this because it's not but then you have you know you have the obvious ones of glencore and glencore is notorious for you know being just fine and dandy with human rights abuses they've done this all throughout africa and i'm, I'm not even sure if they're technically a mining company or just some weird financial transaction company so we can talk about the the issues of getting these raw materials and whatnot but like as a consumer is there anything that we can do or is it just putting pressures on toyota and ford and tesla like what do you do hey, there's you both ways really i mean the, the the really hard thing i think for consumers to do where you could really make a difference is in your purchases it's just almost impossible to figure out where the raw materials that go into particularly the electronics you own there's just so many different parts and components and we're talking about cars here where there's going to be forty thousand different parts or so in a vehicle so I, doing the sourcing calculation on that to determine whether you could buy that vehicle or not is a mind-boggling task and something that none of us want to do none of us want to have to do when we're buying a vehicle and i think that's why it's important to start at the top put pressure on companies not only to say the right thing a lot of them are saying the right thing they're saying oh we won't knowingly use you know products and materials that were developed in these regions but 
that knowingly is critical uh, because even they find it difficult to always trace the location of these uh, items. And you know what? I'm sure there are occasions where they really need something and they know it's coming from a source that is less than clean, but they have to do it to keep the, you know, keep the line moving and to keep the supply chain intact. So they will, you know, sometimes take steps that aren't always uh, acceptable to the rest of us and hide it behind an LLC somewhere. So there's really no telling. I mean, looking at that study from the UK and the chart that traces the movement of these materials from mining through production to the vehicles that we own, you get a really good idea of just how complicated it is for an individual consumer to be tasked with figuring that out. It's something that the industry and the individual auto companies need to be making, you know, firm promises that they're not going to be using any type of exploitative labor in the production of their pro of their products. That's an interesting ethical problem, isn't it? I mean, knowing that the problem exists, what can you as an individual do about it? And, and have you done as much as you can? I think that the most you can do on a day-to-day -day basis is vote for people who are going to enforce the policies that will try to bring this to an end. <clears throat> Voting is very important. And as a consumer clicking on Amazon, I don't think there's a hell of a lot you can do. You can't get a certificate of conformance for ethical requirements attached to your receipt from Amazon. So... I think as a practical matter, you do what you can, and, and that basically is supporting those people who are in a position to actually take action, who will take the proper action. So, I'm not sure what else you can do. Yeah, vote and vote frequently. Vote often. Vote numerous times. You know, register as dead people. Wait, that's not what we're suggesting, is it? No. Uh, so, Michael, you said something interesting about uh, companies not just saying the right thing. So we have an article we're linking to from the Washington Post. Uh, it's called EV Maker's Use of Chinese Suppliers Raises Concern About Forced Labor. Uh, it starts off with Tesla boasts that its electric vehicles are a marvel, not just of innovation, but also ethics, pledging in its annual reports that it will not knowingly accept products or services from suppliers that include forced labor or human traffic in any form. <laughs> I really like to forward, not knowingly accepting this. Uh, the car maker touts its teams of monitors that travel to mining operations around the world and has pledged to mount a camera at an African mine to prevent the use of underage or slave labor. Uh, but Tesla has been conspicuously silent when it comes to China, despite evidence that materials that go into its vehicles come from forced labor. Uh, there's so many things. I mean, the, the not knowingly accept is just some weaselly BS. Uh, and uh, I like the that. age verification <laughs> camera is what really gets me. Well, well, okay. So they said they have pledged to mount a camera at an African mine. So, okay. One camera at one mine. Like, come on. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss Tesla and their love of cameras later in the show. But I mean, this is just some straight up weaselly nonsense. Yeah, I mean, I just I, I don't have any confidence in a current manufacturer's assertion that it is not using these products. Uh, maybe they're not knowingly using them, but they're not doing anything to police their suppliers. They're not doing enough. Um, otherwise, I don't think you would see the Xinjiang regions, you know, survive as an economic powerhouse too long if we were actually cracking down on purchases from the United States. Um, involving things that were made through exploitative labor in that province. And and we were verifying it, and corporations were actually verifying the source of their products. You know, they, they, they the economy and the, the production facilities wouldn't exist there if we were truly sourcing this and stopping it. Well, giving credit where due, the, the article points out that Mercedes does actually have a dedicated team auditing the suppliers in China uh, as well as other places around the world. But apparently that's the only automobile manufacturer that is allocating significant resources to auditing their supply chain. Uh, the others are sending out a questionnaire to some of their suppliers saying, are you good? And the questionnaires <laughs> are replying, yes, we're good. And that's apparently the, the level of insight that's required to affirm their supply chain 
equities. Yeah, we've seen the exact same thing play out with uh, clothing manufacturers back in the 90s getting busted for similar things, um, claiming, hey, made in the USA, but it was made in Saipan, um, and send, literally sending out the questionnaires. Are you guys good? Yep. Everyone happy? Yep. Everyone's got bathroom breaks? Yep. And none of it being true and getting busted. So I, I, I don't... I. I don't, you know, I was going to say, I think positive changes were made there, but I think the only change made was he can't stuff that's made in Saipan can no longer be labeled as made in the USA. Uh, but hey, keep pushing people. Keep pushing. Um, well, awareness is important, you know, uh, look at the whales, right? It was a save the whale campaign and you can, and you can laugh at that. Sure. But it actually did caused the Japanese to conform to some of the International Whaling Commission regulations on slaughtering the great whales. Now, granted, they're backsliding, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of happy humpbacks out there that would not have been humping happily if not for the campaign to save the whales. So public pressure does matter. I have an aside here. So you're right. The entire world has gone after Japan for whaling and being like, this is horrible. Don't do it. But the Japanese keep whaling. So I've got to assume that whale meat tastes amazing. Like, cause you're being shamed by the entire planet. Billions of the people on the earth are like, don't do it. And they're just like, man, this is so good. All right, I will never know. I mean, I don't know. That doesn't <laughs> sound that unusual. It sounds like, you know, it sounds similar to the, it's a traditional, um, way of behavior that you know i guess people are trying to uphold that as a tradition or culture i believe you know that i believe the united states allows the slaughter of some you know ocean going mammals by some of the um tribes in alaska and other sustenance type fishing as well so our hands aren't clean either there and it's you know You'll, you'll take my whale meat from my cold, dead hands is how they see it in, in some spots in Japan. So it's it's not so, unusual human behavior in many regards. The next time you're in a Piggly Wiggly, look for cans of fresh whale meat. Mm-hmm. All right. Speaking of fresh whale meat, let's go to California and, um, you know, Governor Newsom. So Governor Newsom, California, what are we going to talk about? Autonomous vehicles and how much fun they are. So there's a couple bills presented to the governor, um, and I'm going to glance at one of them because uh, long time listeners of the show or even short time listeners of the show, you know, we think robo taxis are uh, in their current configuration, their current form. Uh, stupid, bad. So, uh, you know, California has just been like, we don't care what people think. We're going to do what we want anyway. Robo taxis are our whale meat. Uh, so there's one bill uh, that's put in front of him, in front of the governor, that says uh, the bill would require a manufacturer of an autonomous vehicle uh, to report to the department a co- collision on a public road that involved one of its autonomous vehicles with a gross vehicle weight of over 10,000 pounds, um, which is strange. And the other it's thing basically is basically the heavier trucks. Is yeah, what going I after. mean, 10,000 pounds, that's like an 18 wheeler. Right. Yeah, I mean, if they'd gone for anything under 10,000 pounds, Cruz and all those guys would have been in the legislature and we wouldn't have seen this bill pass, in my opinion. Oh, okay. Well, okay. That answers that first one. Uh, and the other one is a uh, existing law authorizes the operation of an autonomous vehicle on public roads for testing purposes by a driver who possesses the proper class of license for the type of vehicle operated. Um, so, Wait, is this bill saying that, yeah, you can have autonomous vehicles, but there needs to be a driver? And does driver mean a flesh and blood driver or software driver? It's basically saying that if you're going to operate a vehicle over 10,000 pounds that is supposedly autonomous on the roads in California, you have to have a a human safety driver. Okay. Well, that's good. And the reason they're not scaling this down to, you know, vehicles that are actually autonomous vehicles on the roads in California is because of uh, Kyle. Uh, yeah, that, that there's a sustained the, the chances of California, which is very tech friendly passing. You know, this bill was a stretch in, in many respects, but passing something that would affect Cruz and Waymo and their operations and and requiring them to do a safety driver i think that would that wouldn't have made it very far um, through the assembly in the senate in california okay 
And now the next bill uh, on the governor. So the governor hasn't signed that bill, right? That no, the governor about hasn't that. signed it okay. yet. And there's there's a chance that he won't. I mean, he may receive pressure from some of the AV truck manufacturers. We talked about them a lot last week. I would say here, I think the three largest autonomous vehicle truck manufacturers, I know that Aurora's one, Kodiak is one have moved their bases of operations to Texas. As we discussed last week, they're running between Houston and Dallas and San Antonio and Fort Worth, I believe. So they're not even in California anymore. So this may not impact them um, now, maybe if they move back in California at some point. So perhaps the there wasn't quite as much heat on the uh, legislature uh, when they to pass a bill that you know really doesn't impact the three drivers of the industry right now, all of whom are have moved to Texas. Well, I'm going to take issue with that just a little bit. The I-10 that runs from Texas over to California is one of the primary venues for the self-driving vehicles. So, you know, they do terminate at Long Beach for the most part, where the where all the container ships come in. So. There is a significant California segment, even though, as you say, the corporate headquarters moving largely to Texas and areas like that. But in order to continue to use that route, they will have to be consistent with the California law. So generally, I think what we would hope is that this was, you know, this would would be extended to Waymo and cruise operations because that would eliminate, you know, first of all, it would reduce the amount of money San Francisco is having to spend on fire hoses every year. But it would also eliminate <laughs> a lot of the other problems that we've seen around these vehicles. You know, we'd make sure that these vehicles are stopping to yield to a fire truck coming down the street. We make pretty damn sure they're not pulling into wet cement. We make sure that they're not dropping people off in weird spots. We make sure that they're not having an existential crisis and stopping in the middle of a road and blocking emergency vehicles from, from getting places, blocking you and I from getting to our job. Um, the safety driver eliminates, you know, almost all of the issues that we've seen with these vehicles to the extent that it makes us wonder why not? Why is it just, are, are they opposed to putting a safety driver in the vehicles just to show their investors? There's no one with their hands ready to take over the wheel in the car um, because they're clearly not considering the safety, the safety implications here. No, I think it's clearly, I think it's clearly just the power of capital the the venture capital folks are trying to get their money back out of these investments they've made substantial investments billions of dollars and if they've got a driver in there that's draining money out of the bottom line but it's interesting that a lot of airplanes have uh, a cool and super advisory controllers they have collision warning systems terrain avoidance systems they've got systems to avoid crashes on the airports when there's congestion and so all we're really asking, all all of these bills are really asking, is that there's a supervisory controller in these vehicles consistent with other industry safety standards that happens to be a human being. And, uh, you know, redundant levels of control in these vehicles where the hazards are significant and numerous just seems like a, a good idea. I think it's just because they want to get rid of steering wheels and, uh, you know, brake pedals and all that stuff. And they want to, someone has a fantasy of taking the ugly part of a Honda Odyssey and stapling it onto the other ugly part of a Honda Odyssey and making it a car without ability to stop and brake and crash test and blah, 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 blah. Uh, so the yeah, other, I didn't one of those any time soon, are you? <laughs> uh, well, first of all, the, the list price on the, well, a Honda Odyssey. No, I'm not going to get into that. And we'll, we'll cover why uh, later on, not because of pure aesthetics, but because of safety. Uh, but uh, so the other bill on, uh, Gavin <laughs> gap, what are those with these Californian people and these Gavin Kyle? Like this is like the worst version of romper room ever out in California. It could be some East Coast, West Coast beef. Exactly. I know they got a little too much sunshine and fresh produce. Okay. And I got snow. Uh, so the other bill is talking about raising the court limits on lemon law cases uh, to $35,000 from $25,000. So, Michael, explain before we even jump into this, what is a lemon law and is it good for you? So a lemon law is 
really good for you. It mm. is um, going to prevent you when you buy a vehicle that just either generally a vehicle that came out of the manufacturer on a bad day. You know, it's not every vehicle in the fleet that has this problem, but your specific vehicle has a problem that's either unsafe or that after a few tries, they just can't fix and they need to give you your money back. They sold you a lemon um, and lemon laws came into effect starting I believe, in the late eighties, early nineties. We were instrumental in working to pass them in every state. So every state has them now, although some work to different degrees, good or bad. Um, some aren't that helpful to consumers, while the one in California is one of the best out there. Um, and it's being threatened here by, it's a very cynical uh, thing. They're using, they're, in California, they have this court of limited jurisdiction. And so if you're, case is $25,000 or under, you go into a court of limited jurisdiction, which means that you have limited tools available to you to win your case. You, For instance, you can only do one deposition. So when you have a case against a manufacturer and a dealer in a limit law case, you can't even depose one of each. You know, there, there are limits there that really make it hard to properly pursue a lemon law claim. And they're making they're they're this this bill basically increases the amount of court limits that you the mounting controversy that's required in order to qualify for the general jurisdiction court where you're discovering other things aren't limited from twenty five thousand to thirty five thousand that corresponds to you know the price of most small vehicles, vehicles that people without a lot of money are going to buy. And so basically what this provision is going to do is eliminate lemon law protections for a certain segment of the population. And it's the segment of the population that can, that needs the protection the most because they can at least, they can least afford problems in this area. So it's, a, it, it's being presented as a bill that would simply increase the limit to account for inflation over years. But the fact is, you know, they had a chance to exempt the lemon law during the process. And, and, and some of the legislators were less than truthful in their uh, negotiations over this. And ultimately, the bill contained the provision that, you know, it's going up to $35,000. And we're going to see impacts on, you know, low income lemon law claimants. And there's no question about that. We think uh, Governor Newsom should veto that one because it's going to have it, it sets a bad precedent uh, because, you know, every year now they could, you know, try to slowly raise the limit until lemon law claims are completely excluded. If they're going to pass a bill that's intended to raise the limit of certain jurisdictional courts in the state, they should be doing so excluding very specific things like the lemon law, where they're obviously going to be, you know, the price of a car is going to fall very close to the difference between a limited and general jurisdictional court. That's probably a bunch of legal mumbo jumbo. Yes. And doesn't make a lot of sense, but basically nope. here they're allowing lemon law claims to get sucked up and thrown away under the guise that they're pushing a um, general uh, inflation-based jurisdictional change. It's and and the measure is supported by the Alliance for Auto Manufacturers, which uh -huh. tells you exactly where it's coming from, right? So it's 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 kind of a sneak attack on the California lemon law. And we're hoping, even though the legislature couldn't catch it or didn't want to, that Governor Newsom will. Listener, if you love the sweet puckering of a lemon law, you can go to autosafety.org and click on lemon laws and you can learn all about lemon laws and see the Center for Auto Safety's rankings of states for lemon laws and you can read all sorts of you can read the bills of lemon laws and if you have other if melatonin doesn't work for you i mean this might be a, a an option for you as a uh someone who's an insomniac while you're also there just swipe over to the right click on that red donate button and, and hit it like eight or nine times well don't hit that button eight or nine times just come to the form once fill out give your credit card number your first of born uh, your next of kin your mother's maiden name uh, your height weight passport control number things like that and that'd be great <sighs> now onto something sample 
A DNA sample. Yeah, exactly. Well, only if you're driving a Nissan, um, because I think we learned last week that Nissan is uh, somehow getting your, you know, lick to left genetic turn. information. We're still confused yeah. on that. Nissan, do you want to reach out to us and tell us about all that genetic information you're collecting? Yeah. And if you do, please have on a latex glove, Nissan. Um, okay. Speaking of creepy, let's go to uh, one of our favorite tech bros, Alan Muske. So Elon Musk um, we, you know, there's a uh, Walter Isaacson did a, you know, hagiography on him. And uh, in in the book, we find out that uh, that Tesla's, they have cameras inside them, which is not unusual and something we actually support. It's to driver monitoring systems to see, hey, are you actually paying attention when your level two systems are on? And if not, warn you to, hey, you got to sober up and then put your eyes on the road. Most manufacturers use basically infrared, so they just kind of do eye tracking, uh, which is great, simpler, probably even cheaper. Tesla's like, no, we got a full camera on there. We are watching you. We are perverts. So uh, Elon, he's uh, from this article we're linking to an electric, uh, but that wasn't the only thing Tesla wanted to use cameras for. According to the biography, Musk pushed internally to use the camera to record clips of Tesla drivers initially without their knowledge, with the goal of using this footage to defend the company in the event of investigations into the behavior of its autopilot system. Basically, every time the autopilot system would fail, get into crashes and whatnot, Elon was like, no, it's not my software. It is these damn humans and their foolishness. It is clearly their fault. My systems are perfect. That is great. There's no fighting in the war room. Sorry, no, not just. I, I couldn't do any better than that. That was. The no, way you've, been was on your, you've been working on your voice. That's good. I like that. <laughs> Again, still no clue what he sounds like. I'm I'm thinking like a a, a very tight mouse fart is his voice. Sorry, it's a bit much. Yeah, that was that was really the part uh, that drew me in the article is this just this absolute absolutely convinced you know this is a few years ago well before some of the recalls and a lot of the problems that we've seen with autopilot have been exposed even though NHTSA hasn't quite moved on them yet um this guy is convinced that it is the drivers and not the car um, even though he knows he doesn't have LIDAR on these vehicles, he has a camera and there's not enough there to ensure safety. It, it, there's it's not almost, even radar. It's like a true believer type approach, but, <laughs> and it goes a little further than that. It, you know, it's like, so I need to film people in these situations so that we can use this to push back when they're alleging that there is a defect in my car, um, which is kind of megalomaniacal behavior in my book. I don't know. What about you, Anthony? I think he's either auditioning for Pinky and or the brain from uh, Animaniacs. Uh, and I don't think he's going to quite make the cut. It's just he's crossed the line that we've seen Tesla using, you know, sharing the the footage from people's cars and passing around the office um, saying, hey, this is what this person's doing in their house, because there's the external facing cameras and they're watching all of that. So, I mean, uh, jackass is a, you know, is is kind of the rating I'm going to give this. I don't know if it's quite to the creep level of Nissan. Uh, but it's 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 definitely one of them is in in the running to win uh, a future award that I want to give out that uh, one day I'll have Michael approve the name for. Uh, and I do, you know, one thing that's interesting, the article, the privacy teams, you know, they're, they're clear there are people oh, yeah. at Tesla who want to do the right thing here. They're saying we need to anonymize this data We're, we don't we can't associate cameras with a specific vehicle because that's a huge intrusion on our owner's privacy um and how ultimately the concept that everyone come up came up with to make you know the the executive branch of tesla happy was to build a pop-up into the system that popped up and said hey we're gonna film your film you and take all your data in a crash click on this button and that that's what still remains today apparently in tesla's yeah, I want to know, like, if you don't click that button, what happens? That message just stays on your screen or it's like, get out of the car. We're opening the pod bay doors. I don't know. I mean, maybe you can't engage autopilot or some of the safety features if if you don't agree to that. And my Nissan Rogue, it just stays on the screen. 
Really? To, yeah, you got to do something to to get it to leave. Huh? Because my phone on my phone, I get like at least once a week saying, "Hey, click here to agree to our new legal agreements," and I always yeah, just swipe away. I I've, I've never clicked to agree. So come at me, Samsung. Um. <laughs> Uh, okay, let's uh, let's jump. Kia Hyundai engine story. Uh, so this is a, a confusing one for me, anyway. Um, ABC Seven Eyewitness News Chicago. Uh, some Kia drivers say they missed a software update notice, and that resulted in engine f- failures. Um, so it was this an in an update notice that people got in the mail? They got on their edutainment screens this was from all of the kia and hyundai engine failures part of which involved um fires that we petitioned that's on about five years ago and this is their ice vehicles right yeah this this is is, well it's it's ice vehicles but i believe some hybrids have been brought in mainly because the investigation started with a you know a small batch of the theta 2 engine vehicles that we had identified and is the, the investigation remains open even after that recall as NHTSA appears to be conducting kind of a wide ranging um, investigation of Hyundai and Kia fire related incidents um, that have, you know, occurred across a number of their models. I believe Hyundai even opened up a North American, like a special safety office testing facility or rapid response type facility last week to focus on some of the defect issues and other problems that they've been having. A lot of that, that's what they did with the, um, under the agreement they reached with NHTSA to avoid an even larger civil penalty in this case. So they've had to respond. We have seen a number of a number of additional fire recalls from Hyundai and Kia that does suggest they're paying attention. Um, however, we haven't seen the same focus by Hyundai and Kia on giving their owners good quality vehicle or in response to engine failures. In this case, Kia and Hyundai released you know software patches on a number of vehicles that basically added a knock sensor to the vehicles that would pull you over if the software detected a problem with your car. You were given a certain amount of time to have that software installed on your Hyundai or you don't qualify for the extended warranty on the car. And what is happening now is that a lot of people are finding that a lot of people who never received a notice in the first place and had no idea that this problem was was happening have their engines blow, go into their dealership and find out that this has been a huge problem for years. They were never notified. And, you know, even there was even a class action that's involved in this, that, that basically once that was settled, owners had 90 days and to get the, the software installed in their vehicles to qualify for the extended warranty. So there's a lot of people who bought and used cars who, or for whatever reason, didn't receive this notice and are now having engine failures and not being covered under this extended warranty that's been given to other owners who happened to get the notice and, and, and had their vehicle software updated. So that's really the genesis of that story is, is the frustration all these owners feel who've, you know, essentially been left out in the cold because they weren't notified uh, about the problem. How is this not a recall? Because I know just on my car um, a while back, it was like, hey, there's a big software update. And I mean, I'm not paying for data services on my car. And so, like, there's no way for me to download it until I was in the dealership. And I was like, hey, you guys, they're doing, you know, some free maintenance. And I said, hey, there's this big software update. And they're like, yeah, we can do that for you. It's going to take two more hours to download this package. Like, so yeah. a lot of people without, you know, internet service or decent one, how, how would this not be a recall to go to the dealership and get it, the software? Well, the, the, uh, NHTSA and Kia and Hyundai basically, went to the table and negotiated the uh, recall that included 2010 to 2014, some 2015 vehicles in a recall that did a very similar thing. It, it, It inspected the engines, changed the software. But in 2015 and later vehicles and what what the what Hyundai and Kia decided to do was do a service campaign and extended warranty, which 
means you don't have to notify uh, owners in the same way that you notify them under a recall. Kia and Hyundai have said they notified owners by first-class mail, similar to a recall. No one has any way of verifying anything they say in that regard. Um, we don't know how hard they try. There are no regulations that require them to do anything in that scenario. So we just don't know. And we see a lot of owners now who are you know, coming in having never received that who might have benefited from the recall being extended to additional model years because they would have found out about the software patch. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Hey, before we jump into the, the, the towel of Fred's, just so I don't forget, because I mentioned it earlier, why I'm not getting a um, a, uh, a minivan. Uh, there's an article from the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety talking about rear seats and minivans. Um, the restraint systems in all four vehicles that they tested leaves the second row occupant vulnerable to chest injuries, either because of excessive belt forces or poor belt positioning. That's concerning because those in injuries can be life-threatening. So I just jumped right in there. Basically, the article is titled, Minivans Don't Make the Grade When It Comes to Rear Seat Safety. And, you know, you figure these things are advertised as, hey, take the kids to soccer practice. Uh, or, hey, take the kids to... um you know, the clown show. Is there a clown show? I don't know. I, you know, I grew up in the days of station wagon where I was like, just sit in the way back. It's fine. You're facing backwards. Okay. You're rolling around. That's good. So, I mean, hey, these kids have seats. You know, they're doing better than I did. So, uh, they, they should have, uh, good safety, but they're lagging behind compared to everyone else. Right. Uh, IIHS did updated moderate overlap front test. Uh, basically uh basically they're they're not doing that great so the ones that came out okay the honda odyssey like i mentioned earlier uh it got a grade of poor ever the other vehicles tested were a toyota sienna uh kia carnival <laughs> uh and a chrysler pacifica they all got marginal grades <laughs> kia come on you named your car carnival like what's what's happening here like what's oh boy I want to be, I want to name cars. I mean, I think this is just an inevitable uh, consequence of I just moving dummies into more rear seat positions. I mean, we know that most of those rear seat positions don't have pretensioners or load limiters on the seat belts to make sure that the seat belts are working properly. And we know that manufacturers aren't required to test or certify with anyone in the rear seats and that NHTSA is not testing rear seats and end cap or in its motor vehicle safety standards. So why would we expect the rear seats to be all that safe? There's just not a lot of time or effort that's been dedicated to those positions by either the government or manufacturers. And, you know, it's, this is what we expect to see when we move different dummies of different sizes to different positions in vehicles. We expect to see uh, safety degraded because those sizes of people weren't taken into account um, when those vehicles were designed. So I had to write that down. Different dummies of different sizes. Potential title for the show this episode. Hey, uh, I'm not Jada Applebrom, and this is not Radiolab. Uh, but now we have the Tao of Fred inspired by an episode from You've Radio now Lab. entered the Tao of Fred. Do they still do that? I haven't listened to Radiolab in years, but it would have that. There's all kinds of little background noises. I can't figure out what's going on most of the time, but... <clears throat> this particular episode was was very interesting. It was titled "Driverless Dilemma," and uh, it covered a lot of lot of interesting bases. But one of the things it discussed was the consequences of self driving vehicles or autonomous vehicles. <clears throat> so it, it makes perfect sense to think of all of the truck drivers being put out of work. There's only a few million of those, so you know. I guess the industry think that's acceptable. And I think that, you know, any industry spokesperson who says that there is a different agenda behind putting autonomous uh, control systems in truck drivers is really being disingenuous. I mean, clearly what they're trying to do is remove the cost of the truck drivers. But also, uh, have you ever been in a truck, in a diner and asked for a cup of coffee and then somebody named Shirley comes up at the end and says, hey, hon, you want me to refill your coffee? 
So I, I think right there, you've just exposed yourself. You've never actually been in a diner because if you go into a diner, you don't actually ask for a cup of coffee. You just sit down and there's coffee in front of you. I was specifying the refill, Anthony. Oh, Please. no. You said you you <clears throat> asked for a cup of coffee. Okay. Uh, minus was, one uh, plus one. <laughs> in any event, all of those Shirley's are going to be out of work, too, because the truckers are no longer going to have to stop in the truck stops to do business. All of the support people who have built their lives in industries around the itinerant truck drivers are also going to go to the business because there's no itinerant truck drivers. So there's a lot of consequences of this. Um, I don't think people have have really thought about that very much. Um, the effect on teenage romances of self-driving vehicles, I, that's an... <laughs> It's a very important thing to think about, especially for the Wouldn't teenagers. Would it increase teenage romance? I think it would. Backseat pregnancy will skyrocket. I, you know, it's, it's it's hard to know with those cameras, you know. And, and we could watch it. Elon Musk, who, yeah. yeah. That's I how you pay. Know, yeah. I think that's how you're going to pay for driverless cars now is, you know, is, hey, you're being filmed live. That's but disgusting, the question really, but that's probably going to happen. But the question really uh, comes down to how do we embed morality and social norms into AVs if they're going to be on the roads. You know, in Germany, the AV development started with a analysis, of, with an analysis of the ethics of autonomous vehicles. And the vehicles being designed there in Germany are required to be consistent with the ethical basis that's been vetted and accepted by all the parties. Boy, by German like society? Yeah. Wait, so the well, ethics are decided by German society. Uh, yeah, there's a well, little I mean, bit of an irony there. Little, little, it, little implies, <laughs> it implies there's some sort of agreement in society on some of these things, too, and, which there and, may not be. And my concern with putting ethics and morality into cars, I don't know, let's have a whole bunch of white guys who are on the spectrum program this stuff. Like, Yeah, well, let me, let me turn it this way. If there's an irony in the German ethical basis... Mm -hmm then where's the irony associated with the Americans having no ethical basis? <laughs> Freedom! Um, but, okay, but, so here's another question for you, Anthony. Oh, no. What's a Luddite? <laughs> oh, a Luddite is delicious. Um, It's got, like, a marzipan in the middle. It's, like, oh, a, over it's made you, with Michael. Dough. Over to you, Michael. What's a Luddite? A <laughs> uh, Luddite is someone who is really scared of new things and new advances to the point that they're you know, it's basically someone you would describe as living in the Stone Ages. Well, according not to quite. Wikipedia, which is not generally <laughs> oh. quoted as a primary source, but uh, a lot of it was somebody who protested against manufacturers who used machines in, quote, a fraudulent and deceitful manner, close quote, to replace the skilled labor workers and drive down wages by producing inferior goods. Now, if this sounds a lot to you like the plight of the taxi drivers in cities where AV, um, what do they call this? Uh, robo-taxis. Where robo-taxis are going to take over, like our friends in San Francisco, I think you'd be right on the money. Um, the Luddites took up arms and began to smash some of the factories that were producing these inferior goods. And, uh, of course, the government came in with police and destroyed the labor movement, uh, as, as well as a lot of the Luddites themselves in the process, killing a lot of them. <clears throat> um, we probably won't come to that here because we tend to be a little bit more, a little bit more restrained in our approach to capital, but it was interesting. And I, th I think that the Luddites really, if you come down to it, they put their ethical basis in front of the capital, <clears throat> excuse me, to say that this is wrong and, and we're not going to stand for it. For all of us, though, you know, there's kind of a question of <clears throat> would you purchase a car that is designed to protect you by killing someone else? Um, Depends if they know, owe me money. Well, it's, uh, you know, would you make that conscious choice? Uh, when you get a really big vehicle, you're clearly doing that. You're putting yourself and your own personal safety in front of the safety of the other people around you. <clears throat> and you do it without really making a conscious ethical decision. 
you just buy the car, right? Because nobody's forcing you to make that ethical decision. Um, so extend that a little bit because they talk about the trolley problem in this radio lab episode, uh, which is, you know, an apocryphal situation, but, but it reduces to some other things. Like, would you purchase a car designed to protect you by killing multiple people? <clears throat> if the autonomous vehicle has a control system in it that says, I'm going to protect the passenger in my car at all costs, let's say there's an oncoming vehicle and the autonomous vehicle is programmed to drive onto a sidewalk to avoid the oncoming vehicle, regardless of what's on the sidewalk. I, I think that's just part of the marketing campaign for the Hummer EV. Would you purchase a vehicle that's guaranteed to kill other people? <laughs> no? It could be, but you know. The, but the question is, uh, who makes those decisions, right? And and what is the what is the basis for the vehicles to be produced and put on the road without having a discussion about those choices? Are we really leaving it up to some software engineer somewhere to figure out? Well, this is the best way to go, and to give that software engineer no guidance as to how to set up the parameters of the program. That's in fact what's happening. Um, going back to what we talked about, I, boy, I'm really Debbie Downer today, aren't I? This is interesting. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so you go back to the robotaxis. Should a robotaxi be allowed to protect its passengers by endangering people outside of the car? Well, that's a, there's a yes or no answer to that. <clears throat> but you first have to ask the question and then you have to have somebody in a position to answer the question, it's just a void right now. Should the AVs be allowed to include algorithms that protect occupants and developer companies at the expense of public safety? Should we preserve capital at the expense of human life? That's what the Luddites found was the case in England, that capital was more valuable than the human lives that were lost in defending capital against the Luddites. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see some some similar kind of movement here in this country. But there's, you know, hearkening back to what we were talking about before, about the vehicles and materials being built in China, it leads us to a different ethical dilemma. <clears throat> Would you purchase or use a vehicle that's built by tortured or enslaved people? Now, knowing that the, knowing that the vehicle and its materials come from China, believing that forced labor is being used to build those vehicles at some level of the materials, um, is it okay to just go ahead and blithely buy the vehicle? Or do you have a responsibility, you as an individual have a responsibility to investigate what's going on? There's no way of knowing that right now. There's no practical means for you as an individual to look at the certificate of conformance for all of the materials that go into the vehicle. So the responsibility has got to either be absent or it's got to be vested in somebody. And that somebody for us has got to be the government because there is no other agent who's got the visibility and oversight to make that determination. It gets us back to the Washington Post article about forced labor in China. Uh, there's, you know, and you go into the supply chains that Michael talked about, and we'll provide these references to people if they want to look at the, uh, if they listen to the episode. But, you know, none of these issues have been addressed in enabling regulations. So the developers, engineers, in lieu of ethical guidance, are making these decisions. Now, I was trained as an engineer. I never had a course in ethics as an engineer. I never had a... I never had that as a consideration. You know, the engineers looking at the driving situation are given stark choices between turning right and turning left. They're not invested in the ethics of the decisions that are being made and the ethics of putting this forward. I really think there needs to be some discussion of that. And if this is the only forum for that, I'd, I'd be surprised, but I haven't heard any other public discussion of those ethics. So. You know, I'll leave you with this. There is a basis, there is at least a document that discusses the ethics of autonomous vehicles. It may be imperfect, it probably is imperfect, but it's a start. And I think that there should be probably some way for the engineers who are tasked to develop these vehicles to get an ethical reference 
for the work that they're doing and the implications of the work that they're doing before we turn it out and loose on the streets. What do you think, Anthony? I think you're right. I think from a consumer's point of view, I think one of the big issues is that people, when they see a computer or something on a computer screen or something built like that, they think it's infallible. They don't realize that it was people behind it who built it, made choices. They go to Google and they think, well, this is the answer that Google gave me. It must be the only one true answer. And I think they'll do that with self-driving cars and things of that nature. And they think, well, hey, the car wanted to make a left turn. The car must be correct. And people keep forgetting that I was joking earlier, but it's true. It's primarily a bunch of white dudes who are on the spectrum making these choices that are, you know, probably brilliant engineers. But you're right. None of them took a class in ethics. None of them are looking beyond, you know, just some some rule book of, oh, this is what the car should do and not thinking beyond that. Or they're thinking about it in an abstract way, such as the trolley problem. And that's just playing an intellectual game as opposed to this is an actual situation that will and can occur. Um, but I think for, for people, they have to realize there's, there's ethical choices. There's choices consciously and unconsciously made behind every algorithm. I mean, Google's way of searching is not the one and true correct way. Um, your, the, the vision system inside your car is not the one true correct way. There was decisions made behind that. And as we see, like they don't I- identify people who are, uh, either child size or have darker skin. It's because of conscious and unconscious decisions made in these systems. They're made by people and people are imperfect. Garbage in, garbage out. End of rent. Now, Michael talked about the ethical basis uh, related to backseat injuries right now being right. Uh, being vacant, and IIHS is stepping into the void by doing some tests and getting new information about the uh, hazard associated with the backseats of minivans. And we're waiting for NHTSA to do the same with the many vehicles that they test um, Michael, where, 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 and how should this ethical dilemma be vested in the government, or should it be in the government, or how do we, how do we move forward with this to make sure that there is an ethical basis for these hazards that are being put on the highway? I mean, I think that's at some point it's going to have to set some type of minimum regulation here, but when it comes to the many different ethical decisions that have to be made in operating a vehicle. I mean, without getting into, I mean, it's going to be very difficult. I mean, it's very difficult for the agency to do simple things like we'll talk about in a minute, like moving, you know, a seatbelt warning buzzer from the front seat to the back seat. So when it comes to situations like this, you know, I, I don't think they're equipped at the moment to make that type of decision making. I don't know that any of us are in some of these situations, even in the Radio Lab podcast. The most interesting part of it to me was they were putting an fMRI machine uh, to observe people's brain patterns when they were given a, a problem like the trolley problem or like the mash problem, which is a mother having to... Uh, smother her child to protect other humans that they're hiding with and even within our own minds there's a tension when you ask people this question they see two different parts of our brains lighting up and basically firing away and contending with each other as we in our individually struggle with the answer to questions like this and so you know, I think we need a lot of discussion and, a, and, a, and an open forum for everyone to be involved to make sure that the machines we're building are taking, you know, good human values into consideration before we program machines that we turn loose on the populace. Sure. And for our listeners, I'm, I'm sure this is obvious to you by now, but when you put a human being into an AV as a supervisory driver, or a backup driver, what you're also doing is you're putting an ethical machine in charge of what is purely an information processing machine. And that ethical machine is, of course, the human being who's in there and 
you know, the human beings all share certain values and characteristics. Yes, there are psychopaths, but, you know, for those who are not psychopaths, we all share a lot of social instincts and ethical biases. And it's important that these also be invested in the operation of the vehicles in society. You can't have things in society. <laughs> well, you can, but it's catastrophic to have dangerous machines in society without some ethical basis for their use and and uh, misuse. Very important. So I'll end my rant with that. We really need humans in the loop. I agree. A, a good example, as as fans of F1 will know recently, there was a, two weeks ago, there was a, a crash during practice where a driver lost control, hit a barrier. The next driver coming around, their choice, they had... They didn't, they didn't have the option to say, Hey, I'm going to avoid this person. Their option was, Oh crap. I'm going to smash directly into that vehicle. And their cars are really built really well. Or instead, I'm going to turn and smash my car into the barrier. And that's what Daniel Ricardo did. And he broke his hand. And he's been out since, but he managed to make that ethical choice within, you know, a split second. I don't know that an automated system has that kind of capability saying, Hey, uh, I will crash myself instead. We don't know that, and uh, I don't think anyone does. But no, what, yes, I'm sorry. I was just going to say what we have seen in San Francisco is that the autonomous vehicles will block ambulances and emergency vehicles. So you know, clearly, there's work left to be done, and equally clearly, a human being in the driver's seat of those vehicles would not have blocked the ambulances and would not have impaired the fire response. True. And since Michael mentioned it, we're going to talk about it here. This is, uh, we can't really link to it because you, I mean, we could, but you need to pay for a subscription to auto news. Um, so let's celebrate that NPRM. Yes. Yeah, so I'm holding on a second. So basically this is the, uh, the warning system in back seats of cars. You know, you get this all the time saying, Hey, you know, little Billy, little Janie, you didn't buckle your seatbelt. And I know this. Because there's a sensor in the back seat saying, hey, there's a body here or a really heavy bag of groceries, which is what my car does at times. And I'm like, I got to move that really heavy bag of groceries or I got to put a seatbelt on it. Um, and so, uh, Michael, can you uh, walk us through this real quick? So that's that 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 uh, rear seatbelt reminder, I believe we mentioned it a couple of weeks ago when it when it was the, the notice of proposed rulemaking. The rule has not yet been put into place. Um, we're expecting it to go into place next year when and hopefully go into effect by 2027. So we were interviewed in an article in Automotive News, you know, where we did something fairly normal, which we we said, you know, this standard is long overdue. You know, we the standard was first petitioned for in 2007. It's pretty obvious that you need to get a seatbelt warning system in the backseat of vehicles. It's not an overwhelmingly large task. I don't think it's um, rocket science by by Fred. Do you think it's rocket science to do that? Um, I don't think so. Take, no, no, no. I mean, does it take 20 years for manufacturers to be able to comply with moving a seatbelt warning from the front seat to the back? We don't think so. We think, you know, a lot of there were some barriers thrown up by the auto industry pretending it was harder than it was. And, you know, there were some administrations that passed on it. You know, since the petition was filed, we've been through the Bush, Obama, Trump, and now the Biden administration. There have been 12 or a lot of its administrators or acting administrators that have had a crack at getting this thing over the line. And it's only just happened. So we pointed that out in the automotive news article that we were quoted in. And they, we were accused of not being fair to the current NITS administrators. Well, we're not talking about the current NITS administrator. We think that, you know, the current acting administrator, Ann Carlson, has done a pretty good job compared to a lot of people that came before her. She may have a good case to be one of the better acting administrators in the last 40 years. But the fact is NITSA took effectively is going to take 20 years from the time that, you know, public citizen first petitioned to have these reminders moved to the back seat in 2007 
uh, Congress mandated in 2012. You know, it was supposed to go into effect in 2015. And here we are eight years later, just getting it into a proposed rule. That's why, you know, I criticize NHTSA in the article because they deserve criticism. And if it's taking you 20 years from the time an issue is raised to the time it's actually going into vehicles and you don't have the technical capability at your agency to do a better job than that in those 20 years to reduce it to 10, to reduce it to five, how can we trust the same agency to deal with, you know, that's just rear seatbelt reminders. How can we trust them to deal with cybersecurity? How can we trust them to deal with autonomous vehicles? You know, all of the different crash avoidance and multiple vehicle types and levels that are coming out if they can't get, you know, a rear seatbelt warning into the back seat in less than 20 years. That's you know, essentially where our criticism was coming from in the automotive news article. And we stand by that. I mean, there's, there's, you know, we, I don't think we can expect a NHTSA that takes 20 years to get a rear seatbelt warning into vehicles to react promptly and efficiently. And with, you know, consumers in mind and safety in mind, when they're exploring some of these even more complicated technical issues that are coming down the pipe. So uh, current NHTSA administrators, do uh, keep doing better, okay? We're rooting for you. The past ones, eh, they're not there anymore, so let's just focus on what you can do today. And with that, we have time for one recall. We don't even have time for one recall, but I'm going to do it. I'm using my internally developed algorithm to focus on one recall this week. And what possible subject can I choose out of all of our recalls? You guessed it, listeners. Rear view camera image may not display. Uh, Nissan, over 153,000 vehicles. Uh, they're recalling certain 2019-2021 Altima and 2020 to 2021 Sentra vehicles. Damage to the camera harness can cause distortion or loss of rearview camera image display. Why can't anybody get their rearview cameras working correctly? This is ridiculous. And with that, that's our show. Hey, I, I, I think yeah, that's another thing that needs to do. Maybe they need to revisit the regulation if we're having so many recalls that, I mean, I don't understand why we're continuing to see this problem over and over and over again. But, you know. Hey, and Fred, just for you, Piggly Wiggly. Thanks, listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. Bye. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.